This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today we begin the season of Advent, a season of waiting for and anticipating the return of Christ. The first Sunday in Advent is about hope. Sometimes we feel like we're in a wasteland, a place of desolation, or a place that needs to be healed, rebuilt, or cleansed. T.S. Eliot describes it as, quote, a heap of broken images, end quote. But there is hope. And now, here's Martha with our message. The scripture this morning is from 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7. And I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of God, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house like this with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But the godless are, like, are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be picked up with the hand. To touch them, one uses an iron bar or the shaft of a spear, and they are entirely consumed in fire on the spot. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Happy New Year. I get to say that one day a year. Well, we get to say it actually in our calendar year. But no, if you're curious, you did not sleep through the holidays. You did not escape overeating and overspending. And you did not miss the ball drop last night. But today is one of my favorite days of the year. It's called Christ the King Sunday. We mentioned that a few minutes ago. But in the church calendar, we call it the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, or the Christian calendar, it's called several different things, runs on a different time frame than our calendar year. Most of us know our calendar year from January through December, and most of us are thinking, good, we can finally put 2021 in the books almost. We thought that way about 2020, 2021, we kind of feel the same way. But even if we are not familiar with the full scope of the liturgical calendar, most of us have some sort of understanding of the seasons that we have in the calendar. You've probably heard of Lent. It's the 40 days excluding Sundays leading up to Easter. If we've paid attention, then we know that Easter is not just one day. It's actually a season in the church calendar. We probably have heard of Pentecost. And then after Pentecost, there's this long stretch of time in the calendar that's called ordinary time. There are some special days throughout there, Trinity Sunday, uh, Transfiguration Sunday, which is actually not in, well, it's it's a beautiful calendar. But some of those days in the church calendar we've heard of, we're sort of familiar. 
But most of us are not familiar with Christ the King Sunday. Our liturgical calendar actually begins next Sunday. Next Sunday in the Christian calendar is the first day of the year and marks the first Sunday in the season of Advent. So if next Sunday is the first Sunday in the year, that makes today the last Sunday. So typically when someone says Happy New Year, you respond, right? So let's try this again. Happy New Year. Thank you. There we go. Now, Christ the King Sunday is actually, in the scheme of things, a new day on the Christian calendar. And when I say new, it's about 100 years old. It came about, I think, in 1925. And when we're looking at a 2,000-year history of the church, that's fairly new. But Christ the King Sunday came about in 1925 at a time when the individualism that we see so rampant today was starting to rise. It was the time when people, we had this mindset of, I am master of my own destiny. It was a time well on the other side of the Industrial Revolution. It was well on the other side of all those ancient monarchies had somewhat seemed to fall, and the rise of what we call the nation-state had solidified. It was also a time of Great Depression. Do you remember that? In the 1920s, a global depression. It was also a time with rise of dictators and, and fascism and communism and all of those things were also on the rise. There was a, a volcanic undercurrent brewing that erupted in violence and war. The likes of which we had not seen and we pray we never see again. But it was into that environment that Christ the King Sunday came to be. It was a way of reminding the church, followers of Jesus, that there is in fact a kingdom that is not of this world, that all that they would see around them did not get the last word, that there was in fact a kingdom of goodness and of grace, a reminder that there is in fact a king who rules with power and love, with might and mercy, with justice righteousness, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now here we are, about a hundred years later, and what situation do we find our world in today? Is it a world of violence and hatred, or a world of peace? Is it a world of division or unity? Do we live in a world dominated by love and acceptance, or selfishness and fighting. The beauty of Christ the King Sunday isn't that we wake up on this Sunday and all of that stuff has just magically disappeared, like Christmas gifts under a tree disappear in a heap of wrapping paper. It's not as if all the troubles of the world just magically disappeared. But to claim Christ as King means to claim that God gets the last word, means to claim that through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, God always gets the last word, that what we see is not all there is. Those words from 2 Samuel that we read just a few moments ago are often called David's, King David's last words. There are several other places in uh, 1 Chronicles and uh, 1 Kings, I believe, 
that are also some words attributed to David's last words. But these are what we call his last words. Now, perhaps you've heard of the phrase, famous last words. Anyone ever heard of that? It's sort of a slang catchphrase for an ironic comment or something that someone says with a rather overconfident claim that ends up not being true. I'll go ahead and confess some of my famous last words from my younger days. I'll never get married. Ate those words. I'll never have children. The answer to that is sitting in the back row. You see how well that worked out for me. I also remember saying to someone in my, my home church at the time, and I could remember where I was standing when I said it, and I remember the words coming out of my mouth going, oh, I need to get those back. Someone asked me, I had just finished my MBA, and someone had asked me in my home church, we were walking down the hall, and the person said, so what's next? You going on to school? I said, no way. I am done. I am never going back to school. I've done it twice since then. Now, those are some, those are some humorous famous last words, but I imagine that you probably have some famous last words in your life. I'm not going to ask you to confess them. Even if you don't have some famous last words, you probably have some famous last thoughts that ended up being wrong, right? These words of King David, while they're called his last words, also fit the description of famous last words. King David is the most beloved and revered king of the people called Israel. He was Israel's second king, and he was ordained by God to be king. He reigned for about 40 years over the people we call Israel. Now, we need to remember that when we talk about the king of Israel in this context, we're not talking about that strip of land that we have in the eastern part of the world today that we call the nation-state Israel. We're talking about people, almost like a tribe of people. King David was ordained to be their king, and he was their second king. He reigned, or reigned and lived about a 1,000 years before Jesus. And in his reign, these people called Israel, who had escaped some four or 500 years or so before his time from slavery in Egypt, had been carried into what we call the promised land. His kingdom the people had been somewhat solidified under his reign. They had settled into this land. They had fought the battles, conquered the people who lived there before them, and the monarchy had somewhat been solidified and sealed, and it looked as if they had made it, as if they had finally made it to their promised land. And so these words are likely spoken by David late in his reign as king. He knows that his days as their king are numbered. And so he's beginning to cast a vision for the future. This is sort of like a political speech, a political parting speech. And he's trying to tell the next generation that just as God had carried them through all of those years, God would continue to carry them. He was encouraging them to remember that God was their king and their kingdom. Only he sounds a little arrogant. He sounds a little conceited. What does he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are on my tongue. 
as one who rules over people justly, saying that his rule is like the morning, like the dawn of hope. And then he claims, is not my house and my line like this? In other words, is this not how I have ruled as a king? Am I and my descendants not like the morning sun? Are we not chosen by God? Will not all that we do prosper? Dare I say, does that sound like some of our politicians today? Yet if we're familiar with the story of David, we read that and we might ask, really? Is God really speaking of David? Would God really bless and use a man like David? While David was in fact ordained by God to be a king, he only came to possess his kingdom by the defeat and the death of the previous king. David turned a blind eye to the assault on his own daughter, which led to one of his sons killing another of his sons, which led to that son plotting plotting and trying to kill and overthrow David. David himself had an adulterous affair and then ordered the murder of the husband of the woman whom he had an affair with. While David's rule had somewhat solidified everything, they still had civil war under his rule. So really, could it really be said of David's rule that it was just and that it was like the dawn of the morning sun? Could, would God cause such a reign to prosper? Ultimately, we know how the story goes. A couple of centuries later, David's family line and the monarchy would completely crumble, would fall, would cease to exist and the people would be carried off in exile. But didn't David say in his last words that God had made with him and his people an everlasting covenant? So what gives? With all of that, knowing what came next, how was David able to proclaim these words? David's last words, while he likely did not know it, did not understand it at the time, pointed to Jesus as king. Now let's fast forward some five or six hundred years or or so from the time of David and contrast David's words with words of Jesus. On the eve of Jesus' death, he had been arrested on some trumped-up charges by the religious people, never miss the fact that it was the church people, the religious people, who had a problem with Jesus. Let's not miss the irony there. But it was the religious people who had trumped up some charges that Jesus was claiming to be a king. And so they had him arrested, and on the eve of his death, he was taken to several people and asked questions. He was questioned by the um, by the leading priests, he was questioned by a man named King Herod, who was really not a true king, but kind of a, a puppet king. And then he was questioned by a man named Pontius Pilate. 
Pontius Pilate in that region was second only to the Roman emperor. He was the governor of the region in which Jesus was in. So that made Pontius Pilate's rule or words equal to the emperor in that area. And so Jesus is brought to this man, and this man asks him a question. In the 18th chapter of John's gospel, he asks him a question, and he says, Are you a king? To answer yes to that question, that was the number one charge a person could have that would sentence them to certain death. The Roman emperor was tolerant of a lot of things except someone who claimed to be equal to the Roman emperor. And to claim to be king was a treasonous no-no. So Pontius Pilate asks, are you a king? Jesus never fully answered the question. He responded, and you can go home and read it, he responded with something that says, my kingdom is not of this world. There he stands, the creator of the universe, wrapped in human flesh, possessing the power to take little Pontius Pilate and snap him in half like a toothpick. And he doesn't do it. He can stand there and say, yeah, I'm a king. I'm bigger, better, faster, more powerful than you ever thought about being. But he doesn't do it. Why? Because Jesus knows that God always gets the final word. Jesus knew that Pilate had the power to put him to death. Jesus knew that the man standing before him asking this question had the power to nail him to the cross. But Jesus also knew that God had one more move. Now, some of you are uh, enjoying the Netflix show, The Queen's Gambit. Anybody watching The Queen's Gambit? One or two? Okay. It's about chess. Those, the, the, the Queen's Gambit has given the name or the game of chess a bit of a resurgence and, and a rebirth. I tried to play chess about 20 years ago. I actually tried it with my daughter's father. <laughs> Suffice to say, I am a sore loser. If you're not familiar with chess, there's a lot of pieces, literally and figuratively. There's pawns, there's bishops, there's kings, there's, there's uh, queens, and on and on it goes. And you can move some some chess pieces to the left, you can move some forward, you can move some diagonal, and they each have their own rules, and it's just way too much for me to comprehend. So I don't play chess. I imagine many of you feel the same way too. But even if you don't play chess, odds are you've heard of checkmate. Everybody heard of checkmate? Checkmate essentially means your opponent's king is trapped. To say checkmate means the king of your opponent is trapped, can make no more moves, and the game is over. I know that one well. Experienced it myself. There's a famous 18th century painting entitled Checkmate. We actually have a picture of it, I believe. Hopefully you can see it. You may recognize it. In this painting, there is a, a, a person who's sitting there with a little bit of a devilish grin looking at his opponent because he thinks he's got his opponent in checkmate. And so you can see the young man puzzled trying to figure out how he's going to move. 
He's looking at the board trying to figure out, can I move this way? Can I move that way? And essentially, the young man appears to have his own king in checkmate. And the game appears to be over. There is an article in an 1888 journal called the Columbia Chess Chronicle that tells the story of a man named Paul Morphy who was visiting a friend who is also a fellow chess player, and this particular painting was at the man's house. And so the story goes that Paul Morphy stood there and stared and stared and stared and stared at this painting. Finally, he said, wait a minute, it's wrong, it's all wrong. He says, the king has one more move. And so what ensued after that, you could take that down. So what ensued after that was what we might call a social media argument. But in this uh, Columbia Chess Chronicle, from the fall of 1888 all the way through January to February of 1889 was an argument. There were articles written, written, debates, rebuttals about whether there was one more move left for that king or not. And so in the end, a bunch of chess champions decided to recreate it. So to the best of their ability, they set up a chessboard, tried to mimic the pieces of that painting as much or as closely as they could, and then Paul Morphy and several other chess champions played the game. Paul Morphy played the one that supposedly was in checkmate against several other champions. And lo and behold, every single time he won. Proving the king had one more move. David's last words, that his kingdom, that his line would always prosper, wasn't dependent on David or anyone who came after him. It had everything to do with God, who always has one more move. That move was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the one who rules with justice, the one whose law is like the dawning hope of a new day. Jesus is the one who brings justice and goodness. Jesus' response to Pilate was so flippant and carefree because he knew what would happen next. His death wasn't the end. He knew that God still had one more move. To claim Jesus as king means to trust that Jesus always has one more move. You may think that God could never love you or accept you or forgive you, but Jesus always has one more move of love and forgiveness and acceptance. You may think that you could never change, that you could never be the kinder or the gentler or the more loving or lovable person that you want to be. But Jesus stands ready to help with one more move. Jesus takes the wrongs, the sins of the world, the shortcomings, the lost hopes and dreams, and always has one more move of redemption, always has one more move of making things 
new in our individual personal lives and in the world. So let's take the lens out just a little further and look at the world stage that we see today. We see a world riddled with division, a world torn apart and torn down by a pandemic. We see politics that, friends, we have to be honest, many of us put our politics as a greater king over our lives than Jesus himself. We see a society that is hell-bent on making us think we have to choose sizes, excuse me, sides on a number of topics. And that if we're on this side and someone else is on this side, then they are clearly against us and vice versa. And we stand there, we see a world standing there, crying out for someone to stand in the middle and to say, it's going to be okay. Jesus is that one who stands in the middle and still has one more move that can bring us together. So the question for today on this final year, final day of the year, is what move does Christ the King want to make in your life? As followers of Jesus, we are the ones who make God's moves in this world. We are the ones who are called to love each other, to love neighbor, to love those who are adamantly, we think, against us, who think differently than us. We are the ones called to bridge the divide. What move is the king asking you to take? What move is the king asking us as a congregation, as a people, as a church to take? God always has one more move. I pray we would be bold enough to join in what God is doing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We used this affirmation of faith last week when Richard was here preaching. And it's a rather long one, but it is rather appropriate for this season in the church calendar as we close the year and begin to look to Advent beginning next week. So I invite you to stand and join me in this responsive affirmation of faith. May these, may these not just be words that you read but may you read them with purpose. As we say these words, they shape and they form us to be the people of God. We believe in God, creator of the world and of all people, and in Jesus Christ, incarnate among us, who died and rose again and in the Holy Spirit, present with us to guide, strengthen, and comfort. We believe God help our unbelief. We rejoice in every sign of God's kingdom, in the upholding of human dignity and community, in every expression of love, justice, and reconciliation, in each act of self-giving on behalf of others, in the abundance of God's gifts entrusted to us that all may have enough in all responsible use of the earth's resources. 
Glory be to God on high and on earth, peace. We confess our sin, individual and collective, by silence or action, through the violation of human dignity based on race, class, age, sex, nation, or faith, through the exploitation of people because of greed and indifference, through the misuse of power in personal, communal, national, and international life, through the search for security by those military and economic forces that threaten human existence, through the abuse of technology, which endangers the earth and all life upon it. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We commit ourselves individually and as a community to the way of Christ, to take up the cross, to seek abundant life for all humanity, to struggle for peace with justice and freedom, to risk ourselves in faith, hope, and love, praying that God's kingdom may come. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We continue in worship by responding. We respond by the giving of God's tithes and our offerings. You are invited to text to give, or for those of you in the building, there is a box at the, at the back of the worship center. Giving is an act of worship. We give in the way we serve each other, and we give monetarily, but it is all worship. So I invite you to respond however God leads you as we sing. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week for the second Sunday of Advent and a message about love. Advent offers an opportunity to prepare for Christ anew, to reflect and examine our circumstances. See you then.